Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Whether it's your lucky brain, vegan dog food, or why humans are the only talking apes, New Scientist explores the biggest questions surrounding the most fascinating topics. You can get instant, unrestricted access online to all our articles when you treat yourself to our 12 weeks introductory offer and make a saving of 83%. And if you're in the US, you get six weeks free access. Go to newscientist.com slash autumn special two. That's newscientist.com slash autumn special, the number two, to sign up. Hello, welcome to New Scientist Weekly. This is the show that brings you a curated selection of the essential stories of the week. Our aim is to feed your curiosity. I'm your host, Rowan Hooper. And I'm Penny Sarchet. Welcome to the show. This week, we're joined in London by Alexandra Thompson and Michael LePage, and from Chicago by Leah Crane. Hello, everyone. Hello. Hello. Hi. So coming up this week, we've got uh, a brilliant good news story about rainforest regeneration, and we've got very important neuroscience about what happens when you get an attack of the giggles. Oh, that's the science we've all been waiting for. We've also got potential sightings of the earliest stars in the universe from Leia, and Alexandra has the latest on long COVID. But first, we wanted to start with the state of the environment here in the UK. Environmental charities across the country have been sounding the alarm this past week, accusing the government of launching an attack on nature. Michael, what's going on? Uh, So essentially, the UK government has been accused of sacrificing the environment for economic growth. It's announced this whole raft of schemes that are likely to harm nature and wildlife. But it's actually questionable if these schemes are actually going to provide that much economic growth either. (laughs) There's not much economic growth going on at the moment in the UK, is there? Can you give us some examples, Michael? Yeah, so I mean, firstly, one of the big ones, of course, is that the government has reversed the ban on fracking for gas even though numerous experts have said this is not going to help bring down gas prices. And then Mm. last week in the emergency budget, that's the one that's triggered the sterling crisis, the Chancellor also announced plans to set up investment zones across England where no planning laws would be required. Yeah, so this has led to concerns that factories or other industrial units could be built in areas where they could destroy valuable habitats for rare species and the like. Exactly. So these plans have provoked a a furious response. So even the National Trust, whose members are not exactly a bunch of tree huggers, have put out a statement condemning the idea. Yeah, the National Trust and the RSPB, the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds, and a whole load of other wildlife charities are all joining up. And we know the UK already, you know, is one of the most nature impoverished countries in the world. 
So how bad could these investment zones be, Michael, for wildlife in England and the UK? Well, it's just impossible to say because this is just a half-baked idea at this moment. It's not <laughs> a detailed scheme. I mean, the government can't say where these zones will be, how large they'll be, or what planning laws will be relaxed because none of these things have actually been decided yet. So it's not an entirely new idea, is it? Have there been similar schemes like this in the past? Oh, yes. Yeah, quite a few. So in fact, it turns out that there are already 48 existing enterprise zones in England where some planning laws have been relaxed. I couldn't find any assessment of their environmental impact when I wrote about this. But what I did find out is that they haven't created nearly as many jobs as was claimed at the time they were set up. And in fact, researchers are saying these schemes don't actually create any new investment, but simply change where in a country that investment happens. Uh, And it's not the only thing, is it? What else is the government you know, mooting to do? Well, it's apparently about to ditch plans to pay farmers and landowners to manage land in a way that protects and enhances nature. So just to explain the context here, farmers in the UK used to get subsidised as part of the EU's common agricultural policy, which basically pays people for owning land. So that scheme has got to be replaced now that we've had Brexit. So um, this was one of the few kind of progressive changes that people who care about the environment could actually look forward to, wasn't it? This idea that farmers would be given an incentive and and reward for looking after wildlife. If that's being ditched, what's likely to replace it? Well, nothing's been confirmed yet, but apparently the idea is to have a scheme that will pay people according to how much land they have, very much like the common agricultural policy. So why would they switch back to doing that? I have no idea. I cannot explain it. Craig Bennett of the Wildlife Trust has described this as utter madness. The common agricultural policy was regarded as a disaster for nature. And so this was this change in the in, in the subsidies was thought to be one of the good things that could come out of Brexit. And, and now it seems like it's not going to happen. So none of that's a laughing matter, um, but I, I guess we can try <laughs> because our next story is all about what happens when we get a fit of giggles and we lose our ability to speak. And finally, this phenomenon has been investigated by science. <laughs> finally, yeah. <laughs> well, it is an interesting phenomenon though, isn't it? Because, you know, it's mm. culturally uniform, so it doesn't matter where you're from, laughter is laughter. And in babies, they laugh before they can, uh, you know, have any other sort of language. So it seems like there's something really innate going on there. And some researchers think it's subcortical, so, you know, it goes on under conscious control. So the aim of this this study was to find out what's going on in the brain when when that happens. How can you actually measure that sort of thing then, um, laughing in an uncontrollable manner in the brain? Well, the closest they can get, right, is you get students, put them in an fMRI brain scanner and tickle them. So you, <laughs> you induce a bout of laughter. Then you ask the participants to either talk or stay silent during that. And then they scan their brains while all of this is happening. Yeah, I mean... You know what it's like in a brain scanner? I mean, I've mm. been in one and, and they have to strap your skull down so that you don't move so you can get this, as clear an image as you, as you can of the brain. So, you know, anyway, they managed to do it. They tickled the participants on the right foot by a friend or a partner. The participants who vocalised while they were laughing had increased neuronal activity in this area of the brain that controls the larynx and activity in parts of the brain linked to emotion was reduced. Okay, so if if you do manage to talk while you're giggling, you're actively suppressing 
the emotion in your in your brain. Have I got that right? Yeah. Um, so it, it basically, intuitively, what we, we try to think, we try to work hard to gain control of our ability to speak, um, hmm. to get over, you know, to try to regain that. And also the brain is trying to stop you thinking it's funny. And so there's this first sort of power struggle going on between different parts of the brain here. And what about, you know, if you get the giggles at a time when you really shouldn't, sometimes it just yeah. gets harder and harder yeah. to stop laughing. Yeah, so I asked the researcher about this, um, Elise Wattendorf of the University of Freiburg in Switzerland. And she says she feels that the processes run automatically and therefore the the person is no longer has a feeling for the emotional or, or the social significance of the situation that they're in. And therefore, you're, you lose the ability to adapt your behaviour. And she said also that when you hear yourself laughing, that can be a trigger for it. Um, yeah, I mean, we all can all think of times where you've heard people get the giggles. I remember the, the then health secretary, Jeremy Hunt, was um, misnamed, misintroduced on live radio and they got the surname wrong but rhymed it with Hunt, um, and uh, that caused a total fit of giggles. Mm. But the researchers say the data gleaned from our analysis of tickle-induced laughter that is accompanied by voluntarily produced vocalisations accord with those of previous studies that have investigated ticklish laughter-induced neuronal activity. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let's take a break. And who's excited about New Scientist Live? Woohoo! Yes. Um, It's coming up very soon now. It's October the 7th, 8th and 9th. It's the world's greatest festival of science and technology. Yeah, it's taking place in London. You can also watch it online and there are Mm. loads of great speakers. It's uh, actually really hard to try and pick some out. There's such a long list, but you picked some highlights, didn't you, Rowan? I did. Um, I'll put a link in the show notes to those. But yeah, there's so much good stuff and you get so much out of this Mm. weekend. It's a, it's a fantastic experience. So do go along. And as, as you say, Penny, you can watch it online if you're not able to get to London. So that's newscientist.com slash live to book tickets. All a fantastic show. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. And we're back. And uh, next on the list, we've got a cosmic interlude. That's what we've called it. Leia, there's just been so much going on in space recently, hasn't there? Are you going to take us on a bit of a, a tour on some of this? Yeah, uh, a little bit. I, I definitely want to talk about the DART mission, which mm. I know that you guys talked about last week, but it finally actually happened. DART stands for Double Asteroid Redirect Test for people who might have not listened last week. And it was a mission to slam a spacecraft into an asteroid. And it worked perfectly, as far as we can tell. 
it sends, sent back some images of it smashing into this asteroid and they're absolutely incredible, huge plumes of debris shooting off of it. It was very exciting. <laughs> Do we know yet if it actually did shift its orbit, Leia? We don't know yet. It'll probably take a few more days for them to sort of observe the orbit and then calculate if it was shifted. That's right. not one of the things you can tell immediately. But uh, you know, being optimistic about it, hopefully this is going to show that one day if we ever needed to, we could push something like this off course. Yeah, the whole idea is that eventually, if we need to protect Earth from an asteroid, now we'll know how to do it if this worked. So as well as that, you've been reporting this really cool story about looking at the traces of the first stars in the universe. Go on, bring us through that. <laughs> um, so astronomers were observing a quasar, which is an object at the center of some galaxies that's powered by a supermassive black hole and lots of stuff falling into it. Mm -hmm. So they were looking at that, and what they found was what may be the remnants of the explosion of one of the very first stars in the universe, which are called Population 3 stars, and this particular one would have been about 300 times more massive than the sun. So this is something that happened like 13 billion years ago or so, and you can still see the remnants of the explosion. Yeah, so Population 3 stars are expected to explode in a really strange way. Most supernovas leave some stuff behind. These ones are expected to destroy the star completely. So these researchers look, and they don't see directly the remnants of these supernovae or the stars because the stars are long gone and there's nothing left. But what they can see is the elements that were produced in that supernova and in that star falling into this big black hole. Okay, so they, they see the remnants, right? And they, they've looked at the, the light and something about the light that they can tell that it's a particular kind of, uh, of explosion, isn't it? So yeah, what they can tell is that this was most likely a type of supernova called a pair instability supernova, which is a special kind of explosion that only happens in super huge stars. Mm -hmm. And the amount of iron that's produced in those supernovae and magnesium is different from other kinds. So the researchers observed how much iron and magnesium was falling into this black hole. And what they found was that it was a particular amount that was most likely came from the supernova. <laughs> population three stars, I have to ask, what about population one or two stars? Or is that a stupid question? What are they? No, uh, basically population one and two stars are stars within our galaxy that either have high metallicity or low metallicity. So they have found those. They were like, there's two populations of stars, one and two. Uh -huh. And okay. then this third one got theorized, which probably existed before way earlier than the other kinds. Okay, so finding evidence for these ones is is super cool because, it, you know, it does give us this insight into the early universe and how we got, well, because they were able to produce, you know, the decent elements that we need or the, that we need for life. Yeah, pretty much every heavy element would have had to be produced in a star. And so a lot of the first ones would have been produced in these population three stars. And we've seen no direct evidence for them so far. But if we can find that they actually existed, they would be a great probe into the early universe. Now, next up, Penny, am I reading this right? Because it says we've got good news about a rainforest. 
I know, I know, it's just unbelievable, isn't it? Um, but but it's true. Uh, so this is the news that deforestation in the second biggest tropical rainforest in the Americas, this is the Maya forest, is being reversed thanks to a really smart community-led conservation program in Guatemala. God, I'm, I'm really ashamed to say I've never heard of the Maya forest because just I'm just obsessed by the Amazon forest. Mm. Go on, tell us, tell us more about this then. Yeah, so the Maya forest covers parts of Guatemala, Belize and Mexico and a large portion of this forest falls within the Maya biosphere reserve in Guatemala and there are actually quite a lot of uh, Mayan remains dotted throughout the forest as, as you might oh, expect. Okay, yeah. And so this particular reserve in Guatemala, that's where this conservation program has been taking place. And it was initiated as an attempt to reverse two decades of deforestation due to cattle ranching and drug trafficking. Okay, and um, how successful has it been? So as writer Luke Taylor reported for New Scientist this week, the forest was 25 square kilometres larger in 2020 than it was in 2019. And it grew by another 3.5 square kilometres the following year in, in 2021. And he says that, you know, there are these areas that had just become uniform pastures with the odd bare trees, uh, you know, back in 2009. Some of these areas have just gradually become blankets of forest teeming with birds and monkeys again. Wow. I mean, it is, it's like we've said before, that if you just let things restore themselves, they, they often can do it very, very well. So, mm. you know, how significant is this? So the reserve is 21,000 square kilometres and 270 square kilometres have been lost since um, around 2000. So um, building back 28 square kilometres may not sound that much, but it shows that not only has the deforestation been halted, it's been reversed. And, and, you know, that's such an achievement. Uh, Apparently back in 2009, as much as eight square kilometres of forest were being uh, torched a day. So to actually turn the tide on that is huge. Yeah, that's brilliant. Okay, so how? How have they done this? Yeah, so that's very inspiring because, like you said, you know, some, often you just need to let things restore themselves and they will. But th- this isn't a rewilding project. The programme was sort of based on the principles of, of trusting local communities, but also giving them scientific research to sort of inform them and help them find ways to live off the forest without harming it. So what they did was uh, local communities were granted control of the forest by the government, but on the proviso that they would conserve it. And then Guatemala's National Council for Protected Areas then helped them divide the forest into areas for different rainforest crops. And so the communities now live sustainably off products that grow in this forest, like allspice, gum, pepper, Mm. but they harvest them in areas that are rotated at just the right time frequencies to allow these resources to keep regenerating and not degrade and they do also still cut trees down for timber but that's done really carefully too they've got this clever system that's on a 25 year cycle um, where they rotate around and 10% of trees are always left remaining and basically the whole thing means that everything can sort of reseed and regenerate during the 25 year time period yeah it's it's brilliant I mean it it's so it works so well I mean I guess it's just going to be so hard to do it I mean, it was probably difficult enough here. We're just talking about there being illegal activities going on, drug trafficking, and Mm. to roll it out more widely. um, How would you do that? 
So yeah, there's kind of two sides to it because one of the most exciting things is that in principle, this sort of approach should be able to work in any tropical rainforest. So, you know, we were talking a few weeks ago about can we restore bits of the Amazon? In theory, doing this kind of thing it's applicable in, in all the tropical mm. rainforests of the world. However, it really does require this kind of tight collaboration and coordination. You know, this had the government working really closely with the local communities, with the army. They had to evict the ranches. They had to prosecute those that were linked to the drug trade. Um, some of the community leaders were threatened by these evicted ranches. Yeah. Um, uh, one of the community leaders was killed. Um, oh so it, it's a big undertaking. Yeah. Gabriela Ponce Santizo, who's director of the Wildlife Conservation Society Guatemala program, told Luke that there were a lot of brave people, both in the authorities and the local communities, that really believed that this was the only way to save the Maya Reserve. So amazing that they all came together and did that. COVID infections are going back up again in the UK. So it's time to check in on, on what's going on. And, and this week, we've had a study on long COVID. Alexandra, you edited this. Uh, what did the study find? It was a team of researchers from the Office for National Statistics in the UK, and they analysed a random sample of more than 6,000 people who all tested positive for the coronavirus between April 2020 and November 2021. Half of them caught the coronavirus before they were vaccinated, and the other half tested positive for the first time after being vaccinated. Ah, so can this tell us something about uh, the effect that vaccination can have on long COVID? Yes, exactly. So the vaccinated participants were around 40% less likely to self-report any long COVID symptoms 12 weeks after their first positive test compared with their unvaccinated counterparts. So that sounds great, you know, 40%, that's that's a big uh, difference. But I guess one of the things we always talk about when we talk about long COVID is how did they define it? Because it's a, a bit of an issue, isn't it, in these studies? It is, and it's pretty blurred. So in this particular Mm. study, at 12 weeks after they tested positive, the participants self-reported any long COVID symptom which they could not blame on anything else other than the coronavirus. (laughs) Right, Okay, And uh, that was at the 12-week period. Do we know longer term the effects of vaccination? This study only looked at the 12-week mark, which coincides with the NHS, actually, who says most long COVID symptoms resolve within 12 weeks. Personally, I think it's a relatively early follow-up, considering we're almost three years into the pandemic. The true burden of long COVID worldwide is really difficult to quantify because, as you said, it's a very blurred definition and they vary between studies. So, for example, in June 2021, a different Office for National Statistics survey estimated that in the UK alone, more than a quarter of a million people had endured long COVID for over a year. But more recent research from Canada suggests that most recover within a year, which is much more reassuring. But that's based on a sample of 106 people. And actually, 25% still had either a persistent cough, fatigue or breathlessness at that one year mark. And 25% is not an insignificant number. (laughs) So I think in so many respects, when it comes to the symptoms of long COVID, the best way to treat it, the duration, the prevalence, the jury is still somewhat out. And what about the different variants? Because there was some talk about how they might affect the risk of long COVID. 
Going back to the first Office for National Statistics study that I mentioned, one of the limitations of that research is that the unvaccinated participants would have largely caught the alpha variant because that was dominant in the UK before vaccines were rolled out, whereas the vaccinated participants would have caught one of the variants that came along later, such as Delta. Talking about whether certain variants pose a bigger or a lesser risk of long COVID is a little theoretical at this stage. There is research that suggests that the Omicron subvariants BA.1 and BA.2 have about half the long COVID risk of Delta among people who are double vaccinated. But in that Office for National Statistics study, none of the participants who were surveyed would have caught Omicron because it wasn't dominant at the time of the research. It's starting to become the norm, isn't it, that we're just going to have these repeated waves of infection. And we've discussed a lot on the podcast before that a lot of the experts say that it's possible that with every time you catch the virus, you might run the risk of developing long COVID symptoms. So I Mm. I guess the study is is just yet more evidence of, of the benefits of vaccination. Yes. So the vaccines were approved on the basis that they prevent severe disease, but the research is increasingly suggesting that they stem transmission of the infection itself. And Mm. now that they protect against long COVID. So I'm as vaccinated as I can be for the time being. I have severe asthma, so I take it pretty seriously and I'm looking forward to my next dose. And that's it for this week. Thanks to our guests, Leah Crane, Michael LePage and Alexandra Thompson. And thanks to you for listening. Remember to go to newscientist.com slash live for tickets to New Scientist Live. And we'll see you next week. Bye. 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 This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout. Because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl, yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.